We will be looking at various scriptures tonight, but I want us to use as a touchstone John chapter 10. We'll begin there in verse 22. John chapter 10 in verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. It's interesting that Jesus gave this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the security of his believers at this juncture, and we see how it was received. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep, and he gives the distinguishing marks of those who are truly regenerate. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. Very important term there, eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And so he says this life is eternal life. They cannot perish, those that are his. And no one can take them from that state of grace. My Father which gave them me. You see, salvation begins and ends with the Father. It's not of us. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. As Jonah uh, professed from the, the whale's belly, salvation is of the Lord. My Father, he directs our attention to where it ought to always be when we study any doctrine or teaching of the Scriptures. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, than all people, than all circumstances, than all sin, than all situations. And no man, he repeats, is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And we see how the people received this glorious doctrine. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Lord, this is your word, and I pray that your spirit, again, as we've asked already, would teach us the things of Christ. Show us your glory, Lord, through your word. We know that the word of God is alive. It's quick, it's powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and can pierce and divide asunder the joints and the marrow, and as a discerner in thoughts of the intents of the heart, we pray as we study your word tonight that you'd give great confidence and, and encouragement to your children, to that saint who may be floundering in their faith, who may be, be feel very weak at this time. We pray, Lord, that you would enlighten us and, and glorify yourself through your word this evening. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Those whom God hath accepted in the Beloved, and sanctified by His Spirit, will never totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end. And though they may fall through neglect and temptation into sin, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, bring reproach upon the church, and temporal judgments on themselves, yet they shall be renewed again unto repentance and be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul tells the Philippians being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it 
until the day of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 17, he mentions some false teachers. And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, and we'll hear that word again, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. First John chapter 2, verse 19, as some ask the question of, about those who depart from the faith, and John addresses that very thing in his first epistle. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued that same word that we're considering tonight, that same doctrine. They would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. And he's speaking of the horrendous abuses of the Lord's table in that Corinthian assembly. Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That euphemism, that wording of referring to death for Christians. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Psalm 89, verse 30, If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints teaches that those who are effectively called, in other words, those who've truly been saved, they've been regenerated by work of the Holy Spirit, to, uh, to exercise saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will certainly, will surely persevere until final salvation. As Thomas Watson puts it, the heavenly inheritance is kept for the saints and they are kept to the inheritance. It is God who saves. It is God who keeps us saved. For if it was left to man, we would surely fall away. If we were to look to ourselves, we see how fickle we are, how wayward we are, how wishy-washy we are. The arm of flesh will fail you, the old hymn tells us. You dare not trust your own. The psalmist says in, in our text that we read in the scripture reading, Psalm 37, verse 24, Though he fall, he shall not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him. And our Lord Jesus uses this same uh, picture, the same terminology in the, in the text there in John. The Lord is the one who is upholding him with his hand, the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. That verse alone, if there were no other teaching in all the scripture, but that one verse would teach us the perseverance of the saints. He forsaketh not his saints, and they are preserved forever. 
Not temporarily, not till they stumble, not till they sin grievously. They are preserved forever. Isaiah 51 verse 6, The heavens shall vanish like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. These facts are sure. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Jesus said in John 5 Verse 24, he that heareth my word and believeth him that sent me hath, possesses eternal life and cometh not into judgment, will not come into judgment, but hath passed out of death and into life. Only true believers persevere. Someone who merely has a profession of faith but who has not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, who does not have spiritual life within them, may fall away. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, Demas hath forsaken me. He never says that Demas was restored. He tells us why Demas forsook him, having loved this present world. Again, Thomas Watson writes, Seeming grace may be lost, No wonder to see a a bough fall from a tree that is only tied on the trunk. Hypocrites are only tied on Christ by an external profession. They are not engrafted. Whoever thought artificial emotions would hold long? The hypocrite's motion is only artificial, not vital. All blossoms do not ripen into fruit. The Apostle Paul presents the doctrine of perseverance as absolutely connected to our glorification and we see the process that god begins salvation begins in eternity past with god doesn't it and what god purposes what he wills will come to pass in romans 8 he gives this whole uh, teaching the sequence of what takes place in this matter of our salvation for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, the gospel call, the call to repent and believe on Jesus Christ, them he called, he justified. You see the process of our Lord. He predetermined, and then he called. And then those he called, he justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? And there are many questions the The listeners are asking Paul throughout the Roman epistle, and he answers them. What shall we say to these things, these objections that people would raise, as they do any time you discuss this doctrine? What shall we say to these things? And he he sums it up in this way. If God be for us, who shall be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? We begin these hypothetical discussions. Well, I know a man, or what about this person? And Paul gives this question. He asks a question himself. Who is able to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Aren't you glad we're not saved by the court of human opinion? Aren't you glad we're not confirmed by a jury of our peers? Aren't you glad that the opinion of the masses is not what will gain us entrance into eternal life or glorification? 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? There may be many who could rise up in condemnation. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall, he asks these questions over and over again, these rhetorical questions, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can any person do that? Our Lord has already answered that. No man shall pluck them from my hand. Shall we be able to separate? I've heard some argue then that, that we could separate ourselves from the love of Christ. He asked, who shall be able to do that? That who is encompassing all? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he asked outside of personalities, what conditions, what circumstances could separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. And he goes on and on in that great uh, uh, portion of Scripture that praises God for His mercy and His grace and His power. He goes on to declare that their separation from the love of Christ is impossible, an absolute impossibility. To the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 89, he assured them that Christ will confirm them unto the end. What end? The end of all things so that they shall be unreprovable in the day of Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ, adding, God is faithful. Do you see, Paul always takes us back to the source, to God. It is God who is faithful, through whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, our Lord, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, The Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and guard you, from the evil one. Not even Satan can pluck a believer from the the state of grace that they enjoy in Christ. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, it tells us that those who believe it describes them are said to be ordained unto eternal life. This is all by the purpose of the power of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 5, who by the power of God are guarded, are kept, secured through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, those who are genuinely saved know one thing. They know that they did not save themselves. They know that within them dwelleth no good thing. And we lament with the Apostle Paul that we are the chief of sinners, and if we could look into each other's hearts, we would know that we, we certainly are and that it would take a work of grace to convince us of our sinfulness because of our pride and then to break that sinfulness down into repentance and for us to lean wholly on Jesus Christ for our salvation. We did not save ourselves and we cannot keep ourselves saved. We are frail and we are weak in and of ourselves. While it is God who saves us and keeps us by his power, a true believer may sin and may sin grievously. A Christian is not totally free from the temptation to sin in this life. We have three great enemies, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We have Satan and the, the world around us and our own flesh that would drag us down in any second. Lot was a, a worldly, weak, vacillating spineless Christian believer whom the Lord had to deal with in a severe way. 
In fact, the scripture says, in turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after who should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelleth among them in seeing and in hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And then he, he tells us, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of, uh, of judgment to be punished. We could give other examples. I will not elaborate, but you know the classic example of the man after God's own heart, King David, who lusted and sinned grievously but was not lost. We have his psalm of repentance his coming back to the Lord and asking the Lord to restore and to use him effectively again. We think of Peter, one of the Lord's closest associates, the mouthpiece, if you will, for the apostles, whom later I just read from some of Peter's epistles about the, the, the Lord keeping us kept by his power. Let us consider Peter for a moment, whom the Lord told him ahead of time, Peter, you will... You will be sifted, you'll be tested by Satan, and you'll not pass that test. Satan is asked to tempt you, to test you, but I have prayed for you. And Peter bitterly denied the Lord in a pitiful, horrible cursing and denying the Lord. Not one time, but three times. A little girl, a little, little junior high girl, uh, no doubt, pointed to him, and he was scared by her uh, saying, aren't you one of those followers of Christ? And he cursed him and, and, and uh, turned against the Lord, but repented with bitter tears. And we see Peter restored, standing on the day of Pentecost, of all the apostles. The apostle Peter was used as the instrument to bring about the conversion of thousands on the day of Pentecost. It was not always thus, was it? We think of John Mark who left in the middle, left him in the lurch. The description there in the Greek is he left us at the worst possible time on that missionary journey. For whatever reasons, scared, you just fill in the blank. There could be any number of reasons that were justified, but he went back. And so uh, disappointed the Apostle Paul that he would not allow him to go back with him on the next missionary journey. But we can see the Holy Spirit gives us enough to see that there came a day when, when the Apostle Paul said, Send John Mark. He is profitable to me for the ministry. And we read Mark's gospel, the, the third gospel. The Lord allowed him to write that, that gospel of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A saint's faith may grow weak. He may have little faith. He may have, may have real doubts, but he will never have no faith. They may be brought low, the saints, but they're never counted out. They're never cast out. The wise virgins slumbered, yet their lamps were not all the way gone out. Jonah may be in a fish's belly, but God knows where to find him. And he does uh, find him, and he restores him and uses him for his own honor and glory to preach to that heathen nation. We're all warned because of the frailty of the flesh and our great enemies, to watch and pray lest we enter into temptation. For one thing, the Holy Spirit of God is always at work in the life of the believer. 
You may say, Brother Lamb, I feel as dead as a doorpost tonight. I feel no spiritual movement in my life. I'm at the end of this year, and I have not progressed in in grace. I have not grown as I should. And in fact, it seems as if there's an eclipse over me and that the Lord's back is turned toward me. All of us who follow the Lord very long have had seasons of times like that in our lives where we doubted uh, grievously uh, our profession. I'm sure that that there are many of us in this room tonight who might echo that. But I want you to know there is never a time in a true believer's life where the Holy Spirit is not at work. Please don't confuse this with feelings. So often people do. And feelings are fickle, and they will fail you, and they'll lead you astray. They come and go, don't they? They fluctuate with, with the seasons and time of the year and circumstances. Your, your emotions can go from one end to the other just like that. You could go outside tonight and have four flat tires, and I can tell you what your emotions are going to be like. You'll doubt your position in grace tonight, almost, if you go out there. And I'll tell you, if you got home and there was a package on the doorstep a special delivery from American Express and you opened it up and your great aunt June died and left you a million dollars, you would be elated. All of that is emotion. All of that is circumstance. And so often the child of God bases their spiritual standing on those kinds of flimsy things. But our hope is steadfast and sure. It is based on the unalterable word of God. The foundation, the the, the firm foundation, though though the Spirit be grieved by our sin. And when the Holy Spirit is grieved in the life of a believer, that believer will know it. You can always tell when a person is grieved, and the Holy Spirit is a person, an unregarded or regarded sin, unrepented sin in the life of a believer will grieve the Holy Spirit. And though he be grieved, and though he is quenched by refusal to adhere to his promptings, He is still at work. Did we not read, He that begun a good work in you will complete it? He will not stop until it's completed. He may withdraw from us our joy, that prized fruit that only the Holy Spirit can bring about. He may withhold that joy so that we feel lost even and cut off if you go just by emotion. But He is ever at work to bring us to true repentance and restoration. May I tell you tonight that the Holy Spirit is always at work. Aren't you glad of that? The Holy Spirit began the work of regeneration, which led to our repentance and salvation and prompted the process of sanctification. And I will promise you on the, on the, the authority of God's word, it will end in glorification, being just like our Lord. Second Timothy 1 verse 14, the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. He has at salvation taken up his abode within these frail bodies. If you were to look at the tabernacle of old, it was a a pitiful sight from the outside. That tent of poles overlaid with animal skins and badger skins. If you were to look at the tabernacle from afar, you would never have thought anything like the, the Solomon's temple which was glorious and gleaming uh, in all of its splendor. But the tabernacle pictures the body of the believer, frail, not much to look at, most of us. But inside that tabernacle dwelt the very Shekinah glory presence of God there in the Holy of Holies. 
And inside the body of the frailest, faintest, feeblest believer dwells the very living Holy Spirit of God. When you live in a house, you do things to it. You repair it, you clean it, you paint it, you make adjustments. And the longer you live there, the more those things have to be done. We've lived in about four different houses. Three of them were over 100 years old. And I guarantee you that it was always something that had to be done to uh, those old houses. It was a love-hate relationship. And, uh, but, always, and, but it didn't matter if it's 100-year-old or 5-years-old. If there's a building, it has to be maintained. And so it is with us. Where the Holy Spirit dwells, there's always work going on. It may be slight. You may paint one door, and so that's all I'm going to do today. You have, all of us have ongoing projects at home, things that we want to do and things that need to be done. But it may not always be a big noticeable where you paint the front door purple or something like that, you know, or put a brand-new roof on it where everybody says, my, they, got, they put a new roof on that house. And uh, they, they put a, a red roof. Who would have thought such a thing, you know? And, but there's always something going on. It may not be as noticeable as others, but the Holy Spirit is always at work within this tabernacle. And our Lord, just as he prayed for Peter, is continually interceding for us on our behalf. Do you know what he's praying for us? Father, keep those whom thou hast given me. John 17, verse 11. I want to ask you some questions tonight. Jesus prays, Father, would you keep those that you've given me? Let me ask you, don't you think that God the Father answers every one of God the Son's prayers? Can you imagine Jesus Christ praying something that God the Father wouldn't do? For one thing, can you imagine the Son ever praying something that would be contrary to the will of the Father? And when God the Son says, Father, will you keep them? Will you guard them? Will you protect them? Will you preserve them? Don't you know that God the Father hears that prayer and answers the prayer of his Son? If he asks him to keep us, don't you think that the Father will do just that? In verse 12, those that thou, hast give, thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. Who is he referring to there? Judas, who is never saved to start with. Judas is a classic picture of a hypocrite who apostatizes, who though looked like he was the real deal, no one doubted him. The treasure of the church, he kept the finances. Never once, not even as the Lord was at the Last Supper telling them that one of you is about to go out in the night tonight and, and deny me. No one said, I bet it's Judas. I've always questioned him. Not one of them questioned the integrity of Judas. So perfect was he at living that lie. But it was, after all, a lie. None of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What he told Peter is for all of his followers. When he told Peter that Satan had desired to sift him as wheat, he said, I have prayed for thee. Could there be any more tender thought in all the scripture than the Lord Jesus Christ praying for Chris Lamb? 
calling my name at the throne of grace. I have prayed for you. Do you know that in that ministry now, in some mysterious way that we don't fully understand, our Lord is interceding for us? Let me tell you, if he did not, none of us would be saved. None of us would be kept by our own power, by our own devices. None of us could save ourselves, and we certainly couldn't keep ourselves. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. He means utterly fail, utterly fall away. Oh, there are dark days. There are some days we don't know our right hand from our left. There are circumstances in life, the death of a loved one, tragedies and things beyond description that bring us to the lowest point that a person could be brought to. But he's prayed that thy faith fail not. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, if we believe not, if we reach that point, that moment in our life where we wonder if it's all true, even if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, praise his name. He cannot deny himself. In fact, each person of the triune Godhead has an active part in our perseverance just as they have an active part in our salvation. God the Father establishes us. What does that mean? 2 Corinthians 1 verse 21, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ... And hath anointed us is God. That word establishes means to confirm. It it forms the basis of, the force of. And God establishes us, places us in Christ. God the Son confirms us. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then it is the Holy Spirit who seals us. Ephesians 1 verse 13, Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, you, whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance, how long, church, until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. How long are we sealed? How long are we kept? Until we're glorified in the eternal day. And that's forever and ever and ever. So we see it as all of God and his power that keeps us. We surely are not kept by our own power. You can't keep anything. You just try it. (laughs) We're, 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 without his help, we're all as weak as water. There was a teaching in Augustine's day that, that man by his own power might overcome temptation and persevere. And Augustine refutes them, writing, Man prays unto God for perseverance, which would be absurd if he had the power within himself to persevere. And if all the power be inherent in a man's self, then why should not one persevere as well as another? Why not Judas as well as Peter, so that it is not by any other than the power of God that we are kept, he writes. The Lord kept Israel from perishing in the wilderness, did he not? You see, Israel in the wilderness was a very, they were in a very precarious place. For one thing, if God had not kept them, they could have been overcome by the enemy at any time. They had no protection, no walled cities, no houses, Nothing. 
except the Lord. They had no way of growing crops. They had no way of coming by their provisions. And so it was all dependent upon the Lord to provide for them in their weakness. He who brought them out from, from the bondage of sin in, in Egypt, and that's a type of our salvation. He who brought them out and in that time of that wilderness wandering kept them and protected them. What kept the enemy from overcoming them? What kept Egypt from uh, allying, allying with other uh, nations and, and finding them and tracking them down eventually and killing them? Well, you know as well as I do, it was a miraculous provision of the Lord and by his power. He kept them until he brought them into Canaan. And he will take that same care, if not in a miraculous manner, yet in a spiritual and invisible manner, in preserving his people in a state of grace until he brings us home to heaven. We who were elected unto salvation were elected to to glory. He did not choose us for us to fail. What God purposes, he will bring to pass. He will finish what he decided in the first place to do. What God sets out to do, he will do. Can you imagine God to perform something he set out to do? And if in eternity past, he decided, I'm going to save me a people, not because of who they are, not because of their background, not because of their worthiness. I will save a people. I will make them the bride of my own son. And if God determines to do that, and he certainly has down through the ages, he's established his people. Will he forsake his people? Did he ever forsake Israel? Has he forsaken Israel? Even in Israel's backslidings, even in their exile, in times of punishment. We read in the psalm, the Lord said, I will bring great punishment to my people if they go off into waywardness. And he did. We have no record. Please, please, please don't take this glorious doctrine as a license to, to live in sin. You're only deceived and show that you've never been regenerated if you have that philosophy to start with. It is not a license. In fact, the Bible says that he, he chasteneth every son that he receiveth. He disciplines us for sin. When we're wayward and, and, and hard-headed, we who are elected into salvation were elected unto glory. We will be glorified at last. We are being sanctified, we have been saved, and we will be glorified. What God sets out to do, he will perform it until the day of Christ. Does not the scripture say that he'll present us faultless before his father's throne in glory? A bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we can look around and see all kinds of wrinkles in each other's lives. And if we had the ability, as I mentioned, to peer down into the soul, we'd say, how can that person be a follower of Christ? How can that person be a true believer? But aren't you glad that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness? And our standing is a firm standing. It is the justification of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there are objections to this doctrine. And while I don't have time to fully develop them, I do want to touch upon them because the Arminians are those who do not believe in the, the, the eternal security of a believer. They have objections. And one of them is, if a believer shall persevere in grace, to what purpose are the admonitions in the Scripture, such as let him take heed lest he fall? In 1 Corinthians ten twelve, or let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short 
Hebrews chapter uh, 4 and verse 1. Such admonition, Thomas Watson writes, seemed to be superfluous if a saint shall certainly persevere. And he says these admonitions are necessary to caution believers against carelessness. They are as goads and spurs to quicken them to greater diligence in working out their salvation. They do not imply the saints can fall away, but are preservatives to keep them from falling away. Christ told some of his disciples they should abide in him, and yet he exhorts them to abide in him. His exhorting them was not in the least to question their abiding in him, but to awaken their diligence and make them pray the harder that they might abide in him. I'll deal just with another, a second objection. So often people will turn to the book of Hebrews and that those warnings there in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, for example, if it, if it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have felt the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. And while I do not have time to develop the whole book of Hebrews tonight. You know that Hebrews is written to the Jewish in the context of those Jewish people in the first century. Some who had begun to come to Christian assemblies. They heard the, the gospel. They saw the worship, the worship of the one true God. And the, the writer is urging them to go on into salvation and to believe on Jesus Christ. But Watson writes, this place of scripture has no force in it, for the apostle here speaks of hypocrites. He shows how far they may go and yet fall away. They who were once enlightened, men have great illuminations yet fall away. Was not Judas enlightened? They have been made partakers of the Holy Ghost, the common gifts of the Spirit, not special grace. They have tasted the good word of God. Tasting is opposed to eating. The hypocrite may have a kind of taste of the sweetness of religion, but his taste is not nourish. There's a great deal of difference between one who gargles something or tastes something and spits it out than one who actually takes it in and makes it a part of him. The hypocrite, who's only some smack of religion, as one tastes a gargle, may fall away and have felt the powers of the world to come. That is, they, that they may have such apprehensions of the glory of heaven as to be affected by it and seem to have some joy in the thoughts of it, yet fall away as in the parable of the stony ground. All of this is spoken of the hypocrite, but it does not therefore prove that the true believer who is effectually wrought upon can fall away. Though comets fall, it does not follow that true stars will fall. That this scripture speaks not of sound believers, it is clear, verse 9 of chapter 6, but we are persuaded of better things of you, things that accomplish salvation. I want you to turn and close tonight to an important portion of scripture in 1 John chapter 3, and I hope this will clear up some thinking of people who point to those who are not living right or who seem to have a license for sin, who have a profession of faith, but uh, they say they're saved, but they, they have no real uh, relationship with the Lord visible to us. And we have to be careful here. We know that it is the Lord who sees the heart and knows all things. But the Scripture does give us this teaching. First John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 
Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. We don't know fully what we will be like in glory. We can only surmise. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, we sh- for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. You see, one of the marks of a true believer, there's this purifying. The, the word of God does its work in a believer's life, and it causes him to, purify, to repent of sin, to turn from sin. He purifieth himself even as he is pure, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. And you'll know that in the Greek, that word committeth is more than just do uh, practice or, uh, or have a sin every once in a while, but it's literally he who practices sin. That's what the scriptures say. Whosoever practices sin as a way of life, we could say. Uh, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and In him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. In other words, does not habitually sin as a way of life. Whosoever sinneth, and again, that is an ongoing habitual state, hath not seen him, neither hath known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth, again, that same teach, practices, it's a lifestyle. He that practices righteousness is righteous. Even as he is righteous, he that committeth or practices sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. But whosoever is born of God, who is born again, who is truly a regenerate child of God, does not practice, does not habitually live in sin. For his seed, the seed of the Holy Spirit, The new birth, we've been made new. His seed remaineth in him. For he cannot sin. Can the Holy Spirit sin? Can the seed of God sin? He cannot sin because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest. It is clearly shown who are genuinely his. And the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness or does not practice righteousness, is not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother for this is the message that we heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Well, the scripture is so plain. And you believers, I encourage us this morning, ought to take the scripture and say, where do you stand? This is what the Holy Spirit says. This is the word of God. Where does your profession of faith in the practice of your life stand in line with what the word of God says? What do we see here as we perceive this glorious doctrine that God saves and he keeps his own and seals his own into the day of redemption. Well, all we can see is grace, isn't it? It is grace from start to finish. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. But through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. The whole way of our life will be fraught with those kinds of things. We see the excellence of grace. It is all of grace, that unmerited favor of God lavished upon us. Not one of us could say, 
I know why God saved me. Not one of us could stand before him and say, I deserve this grace that you've lavished upon me. Watson again writes, other things are but for a season. Health and riches are sweet, but they are but for a season. But grace, grace is the blossom of eternity. The seed of God remains. Did you see that in the scripture we read tonight? The seed of God stays there. It remains. Grace may suffer an eclipse, not a dissolution. It is called substance for it is solidity and durable riches for its permanence. It lasts as long as the soul, as heaven lasts. Grace is not like a lease which soon expires, but it runs parallel with eternity. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Nothing speaks to our hearts and souls like this book. And when we delve into the deep things of God, we marvel at these things that we cannot fully comprehend. And so all we can do tonight, Lord, is bow before your mercy in your throne of grace. And we approach it pointing to our Savior, the wounds of our Savior that plead for us, that ever intercede on our behalf. Lord, as we study such a great doctrine, we ask that those who may not be in Christ, their life is, is pictured by a practice of sin. Even though not outwardly, their heart is fixed on it and their minds are filled with it. It is their practice. We pray that you'd break the works of the wicked one and by your regenerating work that you would bring them to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you came to seek and to save that which was lost. And your grace is so great that it can break the chains of sin, any sin and any person that can be brought to, to faith in you. And I pray that you would show them these things and may they call upon you in believing faith to save them and to be their Lord and Savior. Lord, we marvel at it, and we do not boast in ourselves, but our boast is in our great Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.